self-care is not, you know, bubble baths and candles all of the time. Sometimes self-care is having uncomfortable conversations, you know, setting boundaries, saying no, pushing back, drawing lines, or, you know, agreeing to do something that is, you know, mildly terrifying. If it's going to allow you to really live in alignment with your heart, with your values, and really show up in these areas that you care deeply about. You're listening to the Wisdom for Wellbeing podcast, the show that blends science and heart to bring you evidence-based tips and tricks for cultivating a healthy, wealthy, and meaningful life. Now, here's your host, therapist, yogi, and fellow full-life balancer, Dr. Caitlin Harkis. Hi there, welcome to Wisdom for Wellbeing. Today we are talking through self-care, which is something that comes up ever so much in this podcast and in, you know, many and probably every conversation that I have with um, with like-minded individuals, no doubt, like yourself. So today we are specifically looking at self-care in the context of the therapeutic lifestyle change model. This is a model that really proposes ensuring that different areas of our lifestyle are aligned to supporting our health. This is on the back of work that really highlights the incredible importance of our lifestyle for both our mental health, so maintaining this base level of well-being, as well as going on to thrive to experience enhanced well-being. Also, this model takes into account the really detrimental impact of unhealthy lifestyle factors and choices in regards to mental ill health or you know what in some circles is called psychopathology I think that this is this is hugely important because this is an area where we as individuals can be empowered to make these changes. You know, it's not necessarily something that we need professional support for. And I think it's rather unfortunate that these lifestyle factors are not, you know, directly clearly discussed in all sorts of arenas that focus on both physical and emotional health. For sure they're there, but I think that this is a conversation that we really need to be having quite broadly because we know these factors are so incredibly influential that in some cases they're actually much more effective than psychotherapy, than medication in terms of cultivating cultivating emotional well-being, mental health and mental well-being as well as physical health too. So I think that, yeah, well, I'm, I'm excited to have this conversation today and, and for this episode. So the Therapeutic Lifestyles Changes model is based on the work of Roger Walsh. Now, Walsh proposes a number of lifestyle changes that you can be uh, taking into account to really model self-care and well-being, and these are specifically exercise, nutrition and diet, nature, relationships, recreation and enjoyable activities, relaxation and stress management, religious and spiritual involvement, and contribution and service. But first, I just want to come back to the basics and highlight self-care. So what is self-care? 
I I really like to think of self-care as really looking after your health and well-being in all the domains of your life. So we have different areas that we care about in our lives. We might have a career that we care deeply about. We might have a family that we care deeply about, friends. We might have different activities that bring us a great sense of joy and purpose. So we want to take all of these areas into account and I think it's important to highlight that self-care is not, you know, bubble baths and candles all of the time. Sometimes self-care is having uncomfortable conversations, you know, setting boundaries, saying no, pushing back, drawing lines, or, you know, agreeing to do something that is, you know, mildly terrifying if it's going to allow you to really live in alignment with your heart with your values and really show up in these areas that you care deeply about. Sometimes we do have to do activities that we don't necessarily like or enjoy in order to move our lives forward. There's a really beautiful quote by Parker J. Palmer that I like to reference in terms of self-care because the other struggle that comes up is often, you know, you you might be here, we might be here kind of connected in a specific way because we want to show up in our lives to positively impact others' lives and to ensure that we are contributing to our communities, to our families, and then we perhaps are subject to the belief or some messaging that somehow taking care of ourselves or our well-being is selfish. And this quote by Palmer is great. So he says, self-care is never a selfish act. It is simply good stewardship of the only gift I have, the gift I was put on earth to offer others. Anytime we can listen to true self and give the care it requires, we do it not only for ourselves, but for the many others whose lives we touch. And this is true in the research. You know, there is ample research now that when we are engaged in positive behaviors in our lives, it has a ripple effect in our community. So you think within your family, that's such a closely connected unit, of course, but we're actually seeing that friends of friends are impacted by one's positive lifestyle choices. So if you take up exercising, for instance, physical activity that is not only going to benefit you but it's going to benefit your family your friends and actually your friends friends so there is this real um incredible influence that you as an individual exert and I think beyond that when we are engaged in activities that nurture ourselves that allow us to live in alignment with our sense of self as well as doing activities that ground us that nourish us we show up in a manner that might be more befitting how we intentionally conduct ourselves. So we might have a little bit more patience. We might be able to really focus on big picture rather than little nuances that that could be distracting or pull us away from connecting with people that we love and care about or that rush us through activities that we would ideally like to spend more time on. So I think this is another important element that when you are taking care of, you're going to be a more effective caretaker. It's important to know that stress is not always a bad thing. The reason I bring this up is sometimes we think, oh, well, we need self-care when we're stressed. And I I don't want to say that 
that stress and self-care are necessarily two discrete entities. In fact, life is about finding this elusive balance, this place of you stress, the good stress. And that's why I say self-care isn't all bubble baths and candles because sometimes self-care is actually doing somewhat uncomfortable things in service of a bigger picture. And use stress is really this place where our productivity or our achievement is maximized and we have a reasonable degree of stress. We have a few things on our plates because those days where we don't have anything scheduled, we might be on holidays or we just thought we would, you know, do all these things on this really open, spacious day. Often we end up, you know, laying in bed or chilling out, which isn't not necessarily a bad thing, but sometimes we need like a little bit of pressure to start getting things done. The challenge is that balance of moving from this state of eustress where you're productivity and achievement is really maximized in life to a state of distress where symptoms of anxiety and depression start to become more prevalent in the context of you feeling like you are under-resourced to meet the demands on your plate. And resources are things like time, like social circles, different privileges that we might have based on, you know, our gender, uh, sexuality, um, cultural, ethnicity elements. There are different resources that we all have, financial, you know, even things like mobility or our location. These things can all influence what we find stressful. And what you find stressful today is not necessarily what you found stressful yesterday and not necessarily what you'll find stressful tomorrow. You know, if you have a bit more time or if you have access to someone who maybe has a bit of knowledge in a particular area, something might not feel anywhere near as stressful as it might have without those resources. And what you and I find to be stressful is likely going to be very different. Um, you know, some of us have have different personality tendencies that allow us to feel more comfortable in different areas and also we have different histories different experiences that influence our perception of stress so I want to make clear that you know it's important that we appraise our experience as individuals in this moment in this context I have absolutely no doubt that any emotional experience that's showing up for you right now totally makes sense if we take into account everything that's gone on and is going on in your life. And then when we kind of accept where things are at, we can figure out how we move forward. If we really beat ourselves up for having difficult experiences or feel like, oh, well, so-and-so did X, Y, and Z, and why can't I do that? It doesn't necessarily lead us to this place of action, of, of movement, of transformation. It's about kind of going, okay, well, these are the things that are here. This makes sense in this context. How do I move forward? And in that, perhaps accepting, you know, when we have reached a state of burnout is really important. This is a word that I hear a lot coming up in the therapy room and it, it's not surprising, you know, particularly in the context of not just the year we've had, but the lifestyle that we are are living where 
we are more disconnected than we have historically been and there's certainly more pressures on our plates. So burnout is defined by Frudenberger as a depletion or exhaustion of a person's mental and physical resources attributed to his or her prolonged yet unsuccessful striving towards unrealistic expectations internally or externally derived. So these unrealistic expectations that we have for ourselves, that we have for others, I get it. <laughs> I have them too. You know, it's, um, I mean, it's actually even funny just in terms of, of recording this particular podcast episode because my intention, you know, originally was to record it ages and ages ago, but there are so many other things that I'm juggling on my plate, other domains in my life that I'm balancing, and that hasn't happened. And, you know, it's not necessarily a bad thing to have these these goals for ourselves and these intentions. It's when we perhaps attribute our sense of self-worth to achievement and, you know, hold a rigid view of, of these demands these timelines that we're putting on ourselves that makes it a little bit harder and that's something that you know if it's going on in your life individually while I believe that these therapeutic lifestyle changes are something we can all start you know independently I also see a really big role for support so talking through um, you know your particular patterning with someone might be of benefit to you and particularly when we're in real states of of distress where things are really overwhelming I think connection and support and having someone sit with us and troubleshoot and kind of help us move through these challenges is hugely important so coming to this therapeutic lifestyle change model you know I I mentioned the different components a moment ago but I'll just go back over them so there was eight exercise nutrition and diet nature relationships recreation and enjoyable activities, relaxation and stress management, religious and spiritual involvement, and contribution and service. These are not all discrete entities. There is so much overlap in them, and I think that's what makes this a really beautiful exploration because we can actually be combining different areas of lifestyle change and transformation so that we're actually maximizing a few areas in our lives. So I guess then in terms of maybe just a bit of context as to why we hear less about these areas than we might hear about, you know, different types of medication or therapies, I think in part it is simply the fact that we don't perhaps as as practitioners have... Um, as much of an understanding of the effect of these different lifestyle elements as might be ideal in terms of coaching, supporting clients, um, whether that's as you know medical practitioners, psychologists, um, social workers, occupational therapists. There's the whole host of um, us professionals that I think really need to just be mindful that that these elements are hugely important for all of us, and perhaps as we implement you know, effective lifestyle change in our own life, it makes us more aware, more savvy of the important 
grounding, healthful, you know, emotionally supportive effect. And that might make us more aware of how we then support clients. So that's, um, that's Walsh's kind of speculation is maybe practitioners who are practicing these lifestyle things will bring them up in session. But apparently, you know, the, the research stats right now would indicate that only 10% of mental health professionals are actually directly checking in on these areas. So I think it's important to have this conversation here. And, you know, when you are working with someone, you know, as, as a client or as a therapist or as a friend, a family member, just being mindful that these things really, really do matter. And I think that as we start down this path, you know, there is, there is very much a domino effect. The beautiful thing is with a lot of these factors, we don't just see, you know, emotional transformation, we see physical health transformation, increases in self-esteem and perceived quality of life. So these things really, really do matter and they are self-sustaining. You know, when we make change in one area, we maybe see change in other areas, but we also are reinforced in making change. You know, I always kind of, I guess, hold space for the fact that for me, I notice very, very quickly if I haven't been moving my body or, you know, putting putting things into the system that feel quite nourishing, I start to feel, you know, this real sort of side effect of, of the lifestyle choices I'm engaging in, which is not to say that I am a saint or that I'm doing things perfectly, but that I do notice the positive benefits. And I think with that sort of in mind, we might want to start just with exercise because this is one area that has been really well researched. And I think I think most of us would know it at some level that moving our body is one of the most effective and the cheapest ways to improve our well-being. So regular exercise improves both your physical and emotional health as well as enhancing your cognitive functioning. So this is being able to plan, to focus, and in fact is preventative of cognitive decline, you know, in the form of Alzheimer's and, you know, different illnesses that impact our um, neurology, the way our brain is working as we age. It's also one of the best anxiolytics. So this means anti-anxiety. It decreases the anxiety we're experiencing. And I really like the idea that it it's a way of breaking down muscle armor because often we talk about emotional armor, this idea that we have, you know, protective walls up in certain areas of our lives and we all have have different ways that we've managed to cope with with experiences that we've had in the past. However, this is not just a, you know, a verbal sort of construct, a psychological strong construct, it's physical too. We hold tension in different areas in our bodies and moving our bodies, exercising can help us break down some of that muscular tension, that armor that we are holding. And perhaps, you know, there is this, again, mind-body connection of allowing us then to open into life in different ways a little bit more fully. I think 
It's worth acknowledging that exercise is beneficial for all of us, but particular populations really, really benefit from exercise. So children, if um, if they're really struggling emotionally, benefit a huge amount from exercise. Women generally, but postpartum women, so women who've just had a baby, and that's interesting because that's a group where it's harder to exercise, isn't it, as well? And they stand to benefit the most. So I think, you know, when we're kind of looking at our lives and going, okay, well, how do I do this? This is where you may need a little bit of support to kind of problem solve and figure out different ways that you then implement exercising in your life if it's not something that you're familiar with or that you've been doing, you know, up until this point in time. There is a dose-response relationship to exercise. So what I mean by that is that the stronger the intensity of the exercise, the more benefit that you will achieve. This, however, needs to be balanced with the fact that doing something is better than doing nothing. So if you go, okay, well, I'll just go run a marathon and you've been sitting on the couch for 30 years, like that's obviously... Um, something that could, number one, injure you physically and and really um, poorly impact the health of your body, but also it's not going to be particularly pleasant or reinforcing, and we want to start small and perhaps build up more gradually, ideally working to 30 minutes, but if it's two minutes where you get off the couch and you go for a walk around the block, congratulate yourself because that was you moving your body. That was you tuning in and maybe tomorrow it'll feel a little bit different. Exercise doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, boot camp or, um, you know, CrossFit, you know, two things that at least for me personally, I really struggle with. I know other people love them. So it's really figuring out the type of exercise that for you works and perhaps combining it with something that we'll talk about in a moment, like getting into nature. So another area that we know a lot more about now is nutrition and diet. And this idea that you know, the rainbow is really, really where it's at. We want a balanced diet for both physical and mental health. So the food selections that you make ideally are predominantly fruits and vegetables. Vegetables, mainly fruits, are of course wonderful too. Um, And then the next point that, that Walsh has identified, that is identified, is that we really want to be mindful of getting healthy oils into our system, into our bodies. And a recent episode with Delia talks a lot about this. I, I guess, you know, I'm mindful of, I have a pers- particular ethical viewpoint that I, that I hold in regards to... Um, food that I want to put into my system. So I, you know, I'm sitting here kind of going, oh, like seaweed and DHA are really, really great ways of getting these healthful omegas, omega-3s into your system. Other people are proponents of eating um, fishes and taking supplements that um, supplement omega-3 directly. 
but for me knowing that we can get the same benefit from DHA or you know different types of seaweeds for me that's where my my um suasion and my sort of reading of the literature goes but this is something you have to sit down and evaluate in terms of your health and you know your view around environmentalism um and you know animal ethics too and peter singer um his episode is really great for just kind of taking into account these elements of what we put on our plate and how we're how we're living out our values in this regard as well Walsh also highlights reducing excessive calories. So what happens when we do follow a diet that perhaps more closely aligns with the Mediterranean diet, um, a diet that is really predominantly plant-based, is it is actually going to be um, reduced in caloric effect anyhow but also then it's balanced with the healthy oils that we want to be eating too. Versus when we're eating a more highly processed diet, a diet that is, you know, heavily based in animal um, fats and calories, that this is actually something that is going to negatively impact our system. And in fact, there's a neuroprotective effect of having this calorically less diet. I just want to be mindful though, working, you know, as a therapist, that I do see the impact of calorie counting and obsessions that we have with calories. And I think the easiest way to navigate this is to be eating a diet that is healthy, that is all the colors of the rainbow, predominantly fruit, vegetables, and that's perfect. Of course, you know, for most of us, there is going to be, you know, a little bit of chocolate, ice cream, days where where we're eating all the deep fried goodness, and that's totally fine too. You know, the idea of being really, really rigid around this, I think impacts other domains when we're thinking about a therapeutic lifestyle. We want to be able to go out and enjoy food with family, with friends. There are moments where we're going to be seeking a little bit of comfort and that's fine if we can kind of meet ourselves with self-compassion and balance it out by eating more fruit and veg the next day or perhaps before we head off somewhere then I think that's a really nice balance and Kelly Wilson in one of his podcast episodes last season in season two kind of talked through this idea of spoiling your appetite for instance if you're going you know to go out somewhere where you know all the all the good food might be might be tempting that's totally fine eat an apple first to spoil your appetite to make it a little bit easier on yourself and and then practice self-forgiveness and understand why that stuff happens too One other factor that I think is really interesting here is something um, that relates to epigenetics, which a lot of you um, listeners will know I have an interest in, and that's that the effects of what you eat, you know, your diet and, and your ancestors' diet on mental health is actually passed through different generations. So the changes that your diet makes to your epigenetic patterning is something that's then going to be handed down the line and has been handed down the line. So we are the products of 
our histories in this sense and we can also change history and change what we are passing on so i think that's pretty cool and pretty empowering and pretty amazing that it has to do with what's on our plate I think the other thing that I'll just quickly, quickly flag is supplementation. So we mentioned the omega-3s, um, and I was kind of highlighting DHA is a really great alternative. Um, the other one is vitamin D. So this is actually more of a hormone than a vitamin, and it affects so many of your neural functions, which makes it a really, really key element in terms of cognitive um, skill set as well as physical health. Um, it's something that can be supplemented quite easily and it's something that a lot of us in Western society is are deficient in. So it's worth just getting your bloods checked if you haven't already and then talking to a medical practitioner about that. I won't overstep my mark there based on um, you know my my layman's understanding of this particular vitamin slash hormone but it's worth definitely doing some reading in and getting some testing done in let's talk about nature so so far we have talked through exercise nutrition and diet and now we are talking about this you know incredible therapy that has no known side effects and is totally free and can improve your cognitive function emotional well-being and physical health Yet somehow nature is something we need to be talking about. You know, we are spending so much time in front of our computers, our phones, um, in these sort of urban jungles that we exist, that we are not getting out into nature anywhere near as much as generations past. And this has a physical effect on us. So what we know is that if we're spending our life in these artificial environments, we may be experiencing higher levels of inflammation in our body and that there's this relationship between being outside in nature and our circadian rhythm. So that's the body's sense of morning, afternoon, night, and sleep-wake cycle that is affected. So suddenly our sleep gets affected. And of course, when we're not sleeping well, our mood is hugely affected and our physical health is affected. So we also see these impairments of attention and cognition and can actually see that children who spend more time outside perform better academically over the long term. So we know that there is this effect of nature and it's just fig us figuring out, you know, how exactly this effect is being nurtured. There are a couple of great um, podcast episodes in season two that talk through different nature effects. So if you're interested in kind of exploring a little bit more about it, it might be worth having a listen to those episodes as well. It's um, also, I think, worth us highlighting that there's a term, you know, nature deficit disorder. You may or may not have heard of it. It's not something that, you know, is so formally recognized, but is something that informally we are bringing up again and again, this idea that our lifestyle, this artificial environment we're existing in, this nature deficit is having clinical impacts on our mental health. 
And that therapeutically, if we get out into nature, we're going to see those benefits. So I mentioned the cognitive and attentional. There's emotional, spiritual, and just this improved sense of subjective well-being when we're spending more time outside. So how could you do that? (laughs) How could you spend more time outside? Again, this might be something you want to sit down and journal on, reflect on, or problem solve with someone. But getting some regularity to being outside, whether it's taking your exercise, for instance, outdoors, maybe you're eating your healthy lunch outdoors, um, or catching up with friends on a picnic blanket in the park. All of these are beautiful ways to spend time in nature. And in fact, we're then starting to pair some of these therapeutic lifestyle elements because the next point we're actually going to talk through is relationship. Relationships are huge for all of us. We are not independent individuals. More and more, we're understanding our interconnectedness, our interdependence. And I think that this is so interesting. You know, there's this development of something called social neuroscience, which talks through this sense that our brains are actually hardwired for relationship, that we have in our brain something called mirror neurons. These are little neurons, little cells that actually light up in response to what someone else might be experiencing, might be feeling. So our brains cue in to what's going on for other people, just like we are then affecting the neurochemistry, these um, these mirror neurons in others' brains. We are so connected to each other, and that's so incredible. So no wonder that good relationships are vital. They are essential for both our physical and our emotional well-being. So we know that when we are in supportive mutually beneficial relationships our immunity is actually enhanced so we're more likely to experience the common cold um, as well as you know multiple psychopathologies that that are more associated with poor relationship quality and mortality in fact so there's been this push to looking at relationships or you know loneliness as a pandemic itself in the sense that you know loneliness or social isolation might be considered the new smoking that it is so negatively impactful on our health we need to be really really mindful about making a very deliberate effort to foster healthy connecting relationships for our well-being and Unfortunately, while we're spending less time with our family and friends, we're also seeing that individuals in Western countries report uh, a decrease, so fewer really intimate, really close friendships and confidants, as well as less time in you know, different communities, be it volunteering or spiritual communities. So If this is something where you're kind of sitting there going, oh, actually, I'm feeling a little bit disconnected or lonely, it's worth getting really creative about how relationships are fostered, recognizing we are in the midst of a pandemic. So, you know, there is this sense of biding a bit of time until it is safe for us to be in um, proximity, physical proximity of others, but there are lots of ways that we can use 
technology to support relationship building as well. And this is an area that's a little bit contentious because there has been some debate in the literature around whether relationships that are fostered through technology have the same benefit physically, emotionally as face-to-face relationships. And there's no clear outcome in this because sometimes it seems like there have been, you know, comparable benefits, whereas other times there might be a bit of a deficit. And I think that given if the context is such that it's not safe for you to be, you know, out around new people, making new friendship circles face-to-face, then the obvious alternative is is that we really do dive in deep to alternative means of connection and support and then build from there as our circumstances change. Being mindful, relationships are not all created equally. So if, if it's the case that you're in relationships that are unhealthy, they are not supporting you developing, your yourself you know in the in the way that you would like or where you do not feel safe or secure it's not the case that some relationship is better than no relationship here there's definite reason rationale for drawing boundaries and then investing that time and space in cultivating relationships where you do feel supported with that clarity. So something to talk through if it feels like you need a bit of um, support around that with with someone that you that you do trust, because I know that that the the transformation of relationships can be a particularly challenging area. And I don't like to necessarily say ending because a lot of the time what we're doing is transforming relationships and that tends to be an easier step a way of moving forward in terms of of how we cultivate and shape our futures the next area i want to talk through is something that you might pair with relationships you might pair with nature you might pair with exercise or you know someone who likes cooking might even be pairing with nutrition and that is recreation and enjoyable activities. This is literally doing activities that generate positive emotions for you. You know, it might be the case that some of these activities are other lifestyle components. It may not. It's it's really about making space in your day, in your life, in your calendar to do hobbies that you enjoy for the sole purpose of doing them. Not not for an outcome, not because it's going to improve your concentration or it's going to make you less likely to um, be diagnosed with diabetes or coronary heart disease. These are activities for joy. So, you know, it might be the case that you enjoy art, you know, maybe you enjoy painting, maybe you enjoy creating music, maybe you enjoy writing, maybe you enjoy walking in nature or by the ocean, or maybe you enjoy running or doing yoga, whatever it is that brings you joy, do that and do that more. We don't necessarily in our society highlight the value of healing from these activities but in actuality the more time we spend in a state of positive emotionality that benefits our emotional well-being and the patterning that our brain is picking up upon 
So please don't feel like, you know, you spending an afternoon painting is avoidant. It's you being in joy. Sure, there can be times when, you know, we might be avoiding doing difficult things in our lives in favor of something that feels good, but just look at what the activity is and judge it on its own merit and its place in your life and who you want to be showing up as in your life. You know, it's not necessarily the case that all things are created equally, but I think a lot of creative pursuits really offer a beautiful form of self-therapy that that we can get lots and lots of benefit from and certainly enhances the work that we might be doing with um, a therapist or a coach or, you know, different different circles in our lives. So the next area then is around relaxation and stress management. So just to kind of highlight where we've come from, we've talked through exercise, nutrition and diet, nature, relationships, recreation and enjoyable activities. And now we're talking about relaxation and stress management, which makes sense because I talked earlier about how self-care is often a conversation we're having in the context of the high levels of stress that we're experiencing in our lives. And we know that stress, and again, differentiating between new stress, that good type of stress, and distress, the state of distress, chronic stress, chronic negative effect on our system can have detrimental physiological, you know, chemical changes in our body and therefore makes us perhaps more vulnerable to physical and psychological um, illness. So it's important to know that when we are under stress, a lot of us may not engage in the most helpful behavior. You know, we might be prone to almost unhelpful self-sabotaging behaviors, ways of escaping or avoiding the difficulties, the challenges that might be in our lives because we're just tired and burnt out. All of those words, those things we were talking about earlier. And, and it's like a it is a very tough environment that we're existing in. You know, advertising is constantly telling us we're not good enough. You know, we're not enough that we need to have this next best thing to be able to feel better, to do better. You know, the filters, the editing that we're seeing on social media tells us that we're not good enough. You need to buy this product, that product. We've got these role models that are unachievable beings really and and then we combine this with the fact that we're often being sold um, you know in addition to products you know pills that we should be taking to to make things better rather than these lifestyle changes that are something we can take control of and evoke transformation in and as I said earlier in a lot of cases are arguably as effective as as other alternatives which is not to say I want to be really mindful and clear in this if we are taking medication for our health physical emotional 
please keep taking medication. That's hugely, hugely important. We always want to take our medication as is prescribed. And then when things change in our lives, we work with our healthcare practitioners to support us in making other changes, perhaps in our medication, to balance out these different influences that we're cultivating so deliberately. So as you increase, for instance, the relaxation and stress management in your life, different areas may start to change and there is that domino effect. So in terms of what you can do for relaxation and stress management, there's a wide variety of activities. I imagine all of you have heard me talking about yoga and mindfulness, Um, you know, different practices of mindful movement, you know, from um, Chinese origins such as Tai Chi and Qigong are increasingly popular and the research is really supporting them as effective stress management activities. So it's both physical and psychological benefits for these mindful movement um, activities, which I think is really quite quite powerful to engage in a practice that affects how you're feeling in these different domains. Um, Western Western sort of strategies are not dissimilar. Self-hypnosis, guided imagery, progressive muscle relaxation are really good skills, really good strategies in terms of stress management. And of course, engaging in a regular meditation practice. And the reason that this one is is so important and whatever form fits in your life, I think go with. If you can find a way, uh, whether it's mindful movement, whether it's a seated practice of engaging in some form of meditation, it's been highlighted in terms of both psychosomatic disorders, so things like you know, cardiovascular disease, um, diabetes, chronic pain, as well as supporting our mental health. So managing symptoms of anxiety, depression, even different personality disorders. And meditation has, since kind of all of this research has been building, has started to underpin a number of therapies. So we call them third wave therapies if um, if you're interested in, in that specifically, but things like acceptance and commitment therapy, dialectic behavior therapy, mindfulness-based stress reduction, and mindfulness-based cognitive therapy are all based on integrating meditation mindfulness in the treatment for um, mental health disorders such as anxiety and depression. And I think that's incredibly powerful. You know, the fact that so much evidence has been accumulating and has been established in terms of this practice. So if it's not something that you have tried yet, it's definitely worth engaging with a teacher, um, or you know, grabbing an app that might be able to support you. I really like the Healthy Minds program app because that one is based on research itself. So it's developed by a professor in the state, Richard Davidson, and it's free. So if you get the Healthy Minds program app, it will talk you through a number of strategies, skills that might be beneficial to you. The other reason for me that yoga and meditation are 
are quite interesting is that it actually pairs with the next lifestyle domain, which is religious and spiritual involvement. And, you know, the the stats would suggest that 90% of us are in some way religious, spiritual, we've got some sort of an orientation, a different way of looking at the world. And, And for me, personally, yoga and meditation kind of bridge into this domain. This is not the case for everyone and it does not have to be the case for you for this to be another area that you might like to pursue. And both yoga and meditation, you know, qigong, tai chi, all of these things can be done in a secular manner. So know that that there's no expectation of a religious or a spiritual slant in order to get the benefits of those mind training practices. But we do know that individuals who practice um, a focus based on love and forgiveness benefit hugely. Religious practices that are more centered on guilt or um, or real real rules of how one conducts oneself in a more rigid manner may not necessarily have the side same effects. So really focusing on love and forgiveness are are really beautiful elements in one's practice. So if there's something that you're drawn to and and you invest in, brilliant. If there isn't something that you're investing in right now, but you've got a connection to a specific religious or spiritual orientation or something feels interesting to you, it, it is worth pursuing and following up. You know, in fact, what the the literature on mortality has found is that individuals who are part of a Um, spiritual community will actually live seven years longer than others. However, as you can imagine, this again then overlaps with other lifestyle factors. So we don't necessarily know whether that has to do with, you know, the relationships or, you know, the fact that there might be a meditative or relaxation component involved in, in these communities too. But interesting and worth keeping in mind and and it's it's worth highlighting it's something that can be explored and something that should be brought up you know in for instance therapy and and in discussions with people that you care about and that you trust because this is something that forms a part of our identity of self and given that that does have such an effect on us and our emotional well-being it's worth having these conversations this stuff does matter the final area that we're going to be talking through is contribution and service so we've been through exercise nutrition and diet nature relationships recreation relaxation religious and spiritual involvement now we're talking about contribution and service and the win-win of altruism. So definitely listen to Peter Singer's episode this season. It's just a few back if, um, if you haven't already, because this is huge. So we know that this virtue, this givingness, doesn't just benefit the person who is receiving, it benefits the giver as well. So individuals who do give have, you know, reduced 
unhelpful mental qualities. So these are things like greed, jealousy, um, you know, real self-focus. This is actually reduced through the practice of giving. And we also see this enhancement in terms of happiness, mental health, and a sense of spiritual maturity when we're engaged in giving, when we're contributing. Volunteers are again and again being found to be more healthy than their counterparts, people who are not volunteering. And this is in terms of physical health and emotional health. So we actually see a longer lifespan associated with volunteering. Again, this similar to being involved in a spiritual community might have that um, effect of relationships and kind of what we said earlier around uh, loneliness being such a, a risk factor and current. But I think that it's worth highlighting that if you are volunteering, if you are giving, and even people who have little, so university students who, you know, I guess in in our society, which I, I do not believe to be reflective of global, but in our Western societies, you know, we might be on a, a reduced income, we might be studying, whatever it is, if we have extra and we give it away to help someone else, we actually experience much more happiness, more positive effect, more positive emotions than if we spend that money on something for ourselves. So if you are feeling down, it makes sense that we think, okay, well, how can I give? How can I contribute? So we actually get benefit from that too. So it's, it's, um, yeah, well, I'll just read this quote from Hopkins. So it's, it's beautiful. If you're going to be selfish, be wisely selfish, which means to love and serve others since love and service to others brings rewards to oneself that otherwise would be unachievable. So giving is beautiful, selfish behavior. And I think it's really worth checking out uh, the life you can save.org or the life you can save.org.au if you're in Australia, because there you can look at the concept of giving to the most effective charities, so effective altruism. Not all charities are created equal in terms of bang for buck, in terms of the money that you are donating and investing, getting to the people who need it most. So if you check out the life you can save, org. It's a really, really great platform to think, okay, well, I've got $5, $20, $50 that I am going to give. How can I really give to make an impact in the world and read up on what your dollars are doing? Like what a beautiful gift. If, if you are someone who does you know, make a a reasonable salary, in some ways, it might actually make more sense for you to continue working if it's a job that, um, that you would enjoy to an extent and that you feel connected in rather than, you know, taking an afternoon off a week to volunteer because the investment that you could then make, you know, the donation you could make might actually impact people you know, to, to greater levels. So I think you can get all mathsy and try and figure out the way to most effectively donate. But I think the more important thing overarchingly is, is just to give and 
to enjoy the joyful emotions that come with that sense of helping each other. Like we discussed in relationships, we are interconnected individuals. When we allow ourselves to support and to help another individual, that is good for our hearts, for our souls. So all of this information, it's a lot, right? And I know that making change in our lives takes a lot of energy and old patterns, old habits, just the busyness of daily life very quickly gets in our way. It's worth taking some time to journal, to reflect, to talk through with someone how you can start to impact your life, influence um, you know, the, these lifestyle changes and their implementation in an effective way. And I like to think of the idea as a self-care signature, you know, considering what for you is important, what are the things that you've got going on in your life and what are the challenges that, that more likely than not might come up for you? How do you manage the navigation of those with your responsibilities and the balance in these different domains in your life? So I think coming up with a plan of activities that you are doing regularly, deliberately, is really, really important, as well as coming up with a plan, you know, kind of a crisis management plan for when things are starting to go a bit pear-shaped, what else might you wanting, be wanting to create time and space for? How are you going to navigate these challenges? So this is something that might be conversation for another episode for another time as, you know, this has been a very, very long um chat today I know so I'll leave you with a final thought when we give ourselves compassion we are opening in our hearts in a way that can transform our lives so that's from Kristen Neff when we give ourselves compassion we are opening our hearts in a way that can transform our lives Allow yourself to be compassionate, kind as you start to notice the different lifestyle domains that that may need a little bit of support. And yeah, I wish you I wish you very well on this journey. I will look forward to connecting with you in a fortnight on Wisdom for Wellbeing. Again, if this is something that's resonated and you'd like to learn more about, please feel free to flick me an email or connect with me on social media. So I'm at Dr. Caitlin on Instagram and Facebook, as well as at Wisdom for Wellbeing Pod on Facebook. And head on over to wisdomforwellbeingpodcast.com for more details. All right. Take care of yourself, be well, and go out, enjoy those lifestyle elements. Thanks for joining us this week on the Wisdom for Wellbeing podcast. Please visit drcaitlin.com to connect, find show notes, other episodes, and to subscribe. While you're at it, if you find value in the show, we'd appreciate a rating or perhaps simply tell a friend about the show. Wisdom for Wellbeing is not a substitute for professional, individualized mental health treatment. If you are in crisis, please contact 000, your local emergency number if you are outside of Australia, or attend your local hospital ED.